0: Heavenly Father, as we've thought in that parable of the sower, Lord, we want to be good soil, that your word goes in deep and produces much fruit to your glory and praise. Father, help us to be good listeners. Help us to take heed how we hear, that we might be fruitful and effective in our Christian living. Bless the children as they hear your word. Bless the service at Pelham Street. Lord, for those at home, Listening on the sofa, for those of us here in the building, speak to us, we pray. Join us together by your Spirit in a common experience of listening to you and hearing your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, you know, we're going through a series uh, looking at uh, Amos. I wonder, do I have a, a clip? Can I do a clip? Or oh, you tell it? Yeah, I'll tell, ask Peter to move me on. When uh, So, uh, different slides so we've got a series going through Amos looking at the the shepherd prophet he was a shepherd from the south uh, in, of Israel called Judah there was a split in the nation the southern tribes are called Judah the northern tribes were called Israel and Amos was a, a shepherd prophet who went from the south to the north to bring a message to Israel that in about 30 years time was going to be invaded by the Assyrian army and basically Israel as a nation Was going to come to an end. And God had warned them many, many times. And Amos was one of the last prophets before that event took place. Now, there were individuals of the Israelites who were saved, who were rescued. And uh, so that's good. The message did have an effect. But as a whole, as a nation, there was devastation and decimation. And uh, it was a very sad fact that the people of Israel in the north, by and large, didn't respond to the message of. Amos and God's message, obviously, through him. Now, sometimes people talk as if they know it all, don't they? Sometimes people talk as if they have all the answers, as if they've got a PhD in getting it right all the time. But the truth is that none of us are high and mighty, are they? None of us are high and mighty enough to know it all and to be able to speak with such authority. We always need to recognize our weakness, our humility. Whenever we speak and people such as great leaders of the past, military with military might, for example, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, their lives come to an end. They suffer, like all of us, from the weakness and frailties of life, including death itself. No one is above. No one can speak with a high and mighty voice. Now, we're looking at uh, the subject of poison justice, which should be on the next slide. And that's the title for this particular message today. Because the people, particularly the leaders of Israel in the north, had made such a a terrible corruption of what is good and what is right, that even justice itself was poisoned. And one of the first problems that uh, Amos addresses in this part of his message is a problem of pride, which should be the next slide. And we're looking at verses 8 uh, to 14 as a whole and looking at the theme of pride through these verses in this first section. As I said, there's no one in the world who can talk about themselves in high and mighty terms, maybe for an instant, maybe for a moment, but ultimately all people suffer from problems and uh, weaknesses. There's no human being who's truly high and mighty. We would rightly think that such a person is a show-off, and we would think of someone talking that way. We'd think about the proverb, wouldn't we, pride comes before a fall, Uh, That would come to mind if we heard someone talk like that. And there are people who do talk in kind of high and mighty proud terms. But as we've said, the strongest, most powerful person cannot avoid accidents. The most powerful and the most uh, important person in, in the world and most powerful cannot avoid unseen disasters or the fatal disease. They and all of us need to have that right sense of our own weakness and vulnerability. Only God can talk in true high and mighty ways, can't he? And he's not a show-off if he does it. Only God can speak with authority, such authority, and not be a show-off. And he's not vulnerable to anything. He's not vulnerable to, to disease or accidents, the unseen, because he knows all, he sees all, and he is almighty. By definition, he can talk that way because he is God, and he's the only being in the universe that can talk with such authority in a high and mighty way. He is God. That's the point. That's what God is, that's what God means, that he is the one who can talk that way. And he says in verse 8 of our passage, the sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord Almighty declares. We could never use that kind of language, could we? But he can, because he's God. I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. Verse 11, for the Lord has given the command, he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. The Lord speaks. Verse 14, the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. Now, the word Lord, and there should be a box come up for that. Peter can press, there we go. The Lord. The word Lord is our translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, or in Hebrew, it's just four consonants, Y-H-W-H, and We think after many years of scholarship that the best way to pronounce it is, if I was a Hebrew speaker I could do it uh, even better, but Yahweh or something like that. It was the personal name of God, Yahweh, the personal name of God and God's people before Moses knew this name but it seems that from the time of Moses there's a special emphasis on the name Lord or Yahweh and the name is associated with God's promises to Israel. It's to do with his covenant relationship with Israel. It's a personal name revealed to the people that he has chosen uh, to love in a particular way in this special relationship. And so Israelites could say, the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken to us. He has given us his law. He has chosen us to be his people. We are Yahweh's people. We are the Lord's people. We have been chosen to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to others, in theory, that's what they could have been and should have been. and were at times. But as we can see from what's happening in Israel in the north, now it is not. they have not reached their potential. But they would say we belong to the Lord. He protects us and he helps us. Look at what God has done for us in the past through the Exodus and other times where God has given us great victories over overwhelming enemies who came to destroy us. We are Yahweh's. We are the Lord's. Joshua 24 uh, is a, a verse which speaks about the, the challenge that Joshua... Uh, gives to the people of Israel. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. It was like a reaffirmation of the, the law of God that had given at the time of Moses as the Israelites were going into the promised land that he provided for them. Now, imagine, imagine a good trusted friend of yours, a mentor of yours, someone that you look up to, look up to, look to. Now, you go together in people's minds, you and that person, you and that mentor, that person who you look up to and respect. And you look up to your friend with with great fondness, and you look up to that friend with a great deal of respect. And they've committed themselves to, to being there for you. It's that kind of friend. And you've promised to always be there for them and to respect them and to honor them. But one day, this good friend that has shown you so much kindness turns to you and says, I hate your ugly pride. I'm going to have to smash your grand house to bits. You have turned justice into poison. I'm going to have to send someone to invade and oppress you. Imagine that being said. Be hard to take, wouldn't it? Be hard to take. Now, don't forget the Lord, Yahweh, had loved and committed himself by a firm promise to Israel. He emphasized it with the reference to his personal name. He'd opened up his personal self to this nation. He'd opened his heart to them. He'd loved them genuinely in practical ways. And they had promised to be faithful to him. But time after time after time, they dishonored the good name of the Lord. They were supposed to be the Lord's. But time after time after time, they dishonored the good name of the Lord. They had neglected each other too. They had oppressed each other. They had downtrodden the poor and the vulnerable in their community, in their society. And they'd been warned time and time and time after time. And now the promise that God is making in his own name, the the promise that God is making in his name of Yahweh, is to punish Israel for their sins. Now, it was to be expected, Israel should not be surprised, because they'd agreed to the conditions of blessing. They'd agreed that to turn away from the Lord, after all he'd done for them, would eventually bring judgment. And so it should have been no surprise. But to hear those words from the Lord, their Yahweh, my Yahweh, our Yahweh, would surely you would have thought broken their heart to repent. If a good friend had said that to you, if someone you trust as a mentor said to you, I think your pride is, is terrible. And if you carry on with that attitude, it's going to mean terrible consequences. The way that you've oppressed other people, the way that you've turned justice into poison, surely that would make your heart break and make you think, well, I've got to do something about this. This is a friend who's loved me and, and, and I've trusted and has been a mentor to me, and they're pointing out something wrong in my life, and surely I need to respond to this. Would Israel respond to this from the Lord? they Yahweh. Surely it should have broken their hearts to repent. But it didn't seem to. didn't seem to. Now verses 9 to 10. There's a kind of a situation here which is probably hard to understand. But what it does, it depicts a a situation where in the future the enemy has come. There's been an invasion. And there are typically bodies in a house who have died either because of the siege, because of the soldiers have been through that district, and a relative of the family comes along with the grim duty of dealing with the bodies, and they're going to be taken out and, and cremated. And as he goes through the house, he calls out and asks if there's anyone alive hiding there. Is anyone still there? Is anyone still of you alive? The answer comes, maybe from a corner. No, it's, it's only me. I, I'm the only one left. And the relative says to the person hiding, Shh, be quiet. Don't mention the name of the Lord. Shh, we mustn't mention the name of the Lord. Yahweh. There's something about the disaster that is going to come upon the Israelites that will make people cautious even to mention the name of the Lord. They brought his name into great dishonor. They brought judgment on themselves. And now they're cautious about even mentioning That special name, Yahweh. Now that actually came true. Because after this disaster, Jews became reluctant to use, to pronounce the name Yahweh. And that's why we don't have the kind of evidence passed on generation to generation of how that name was pronounced. Because they stopped pronouncing it. They stopped using it. They would use an alternative word like Adonai. Instead of Yahweh. Because they were, remember what had happened at this time. Now, this name which was treasured, the name which was called upon for salvation, the name Yahweh which was called upon for rescue, now they're afraid to not to, to even mention the name. Fear and shame. And you know, if we're a Christian and we're not walking with the Lord as we should, if we're a Christian and we're not following, as, following him as we should, Sometimes it gets hard to talk about the Lord, doesn't it? It gets hard to talk about Jesus. It gets hard to talk openly about our walk with, with him because that walk is stagnant, going backwards. We're, not, we're involved in something we shouldn't be. And so to, to talk about the name of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, to, to share conversation about Jesus gets hard, doesn't it? May we never fall into that. And if we have, let's turn from it. Let's come back to a close walk with the Lord. Not only had, as it was going to happen in the future, in about 30 years' time, not only would the Israelites have lost their nation, but they were going to lose their sense of identity. They're going to lose their sense of reason to be. Now, we do know that there was partial restoration of the nation at the time of Nehemiah. Uh, that was about four 500 years before, uh, before Christ came. But still much was lost. Still much was lost. Even, even in, amongst the, the people that were the Lord's. But there's some good news. Because this is about, seven, about 700 years before Christ came. So in about seven centuries, God was going to intervene. What happened was that God lived amongst us. In about 700 years from Amos. God taught us. We thought about the power of the sun. God amongst us, teaching us. That same God who came to live amongst us died to save us. That same God living amongst us rose again after his death in power and glory, and he's able to save us. And now God has given us a fresh take on the name Yahweh. He's given us a fresh take on that name. He's given the name for all peoples now, not just for the Israelites. Not just for Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. And it means Yahweh, Savior. Yahweh saves. The Apostle Peter refers to it in Acts 4 verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. John 20 verse 30. Jesus performed many of the signs in the presence of his disciples, John writes, the Apostle John, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So now we have a name. We have a, if you like, a, a, a glorious twist on the name Yahweh. Because we have Jesus. Yahweh saves. The Lord Saves that's what Jesus means, and so now the name that was lost to those people of Israel, that name that was became a, a word to be hush about, that name is a name that we can embrace and hold on to and proclaim the name of Jesus, the name that we love. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus! Oh, how sweet to trust in His name. And the first focus of the Lord's challenge here in this passage is pride, as we mentioned earlier on. And this is what they need to face up to. And maybe this is what we need to face up to before we even become a Christian. Or if we are a Christian and maybe pride is creeping back, trying to get back onto the throne of our hearts. The Israelites were proud of their military defenses. The capital city of Israel was Samaria. And that was on a hill. And it was well defended, easily, relatively easy to defend. Verse 8 says, The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. You think you're invulnerable, but you are vulnerable. As well as being proud about their defenses, their physical defenses, military defenses, the people were proud about their grand houses. Verse 11, there's something going to happen to the grand houses. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. The things that you're proud about, the things that you're hiding behind, the things that you uh, are so important to you, they're going to come to nothing. Come to me, that you might live. There's, we've come across that message, haven't we, in Amos. Now, the next uh, button to press should bring up the question about pride. What is so bad? Thank you. about pride. Now we use the word pride in different ways, don't we? So for example, it can mean to feel good about something that we admire. For example, we may feel pride about our town or our village, its history, its scenery, that it won the, the, the best kept village in the year 2000 something, whatever it might be. We might feel pride about where we live, we may feel proud about the efforts our children put into their studies oh bless them they've tried hard and they've done well we we may be pleased to feel proud about something that we've made you know some of you into crafts and making things and there's a a good sense of pride isn't it in achievement learning an instrument one day I might get that (laughs) and the pleasure of a job well done so a pride in making things and doing it well and these are good things these are healthy things And and God had that right sense of pride, didn't he, when he created? And he said, he declared it was very good. And God was pleased about what he'd created. So there's a right sense of pride in a job well done. But we can have a sense of pride in, in all those things with a humility ourselves, a humility and a thankfulness to God, recognizing that God is the ultimate source of all that is good, recognizing that we live in his world, and that all that we can do, even the good job that we've done, It's ultimately because of him, and so we have that humility and that sense of uh, of recognition of God's place in all this. But then there's a pride which is sinful, a pride which is ugly, a pride which God abhors, as it says here, I abhor the pride of Jacob. There's a pride which is sinful because it is an expression of arrogance. It's a self-centeredness. It's a self-focused, self-exalting attitude. It pretends that we're self-reliant. And in practical terms, our attitude and our behavior is that we don't need God. We don't need him. And pride is more serious than maybe we have thought. It focuses on ourselves. It focuses on other human beings, maybe, and their achievements. It puts people on posters in our rooms, uh, people that we admire, whether it's sports or, or music or whatever it might be, and we exalt them and their achievements, which in itself isn't wrong. But sinful pride exalts other people and ourselves and ignores God. And that's sinful, the sinful element. What it does, it puts God, at least, even if we don't totally ignore him, it puts God in a box and not on the throne where he should be. So God's in the Sunday box. God's in that box, that part of my life. I might have thought of him at some point, but the rest of my life, I'm in charge. I get on with it. It's me and my people that are in charge. God is not on the throne where he should be. And the prime example, if you like, the the first example of this is back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created and put in a, a place where they had everything they needed. They had everything they needed for happiness with each other. They had everything they needed for food and well-being. And most of all, they had everything they needed for a happy relationship with their creator, with God. But what did they do? Rather than trusting in God as the prime provider, that thought come through the serpent, through the tempter, the temptation came of getting more independent of God. We can put God in a box. God has provided all these things. Yeah, but the tempter said, you can have more without God. You can even be like God if you eat that fruit he told you not to. The temptation of getting more independent of God, and we see that in Genesis 3, verse 4 to 6. The, 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 the devil, the serpent, lies. You will not surely die, certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So you can see what the tempter says. He says, you do, there's something more that God is not giving you. There's something more that you can have through your own efforts, through taking that for it. And she went for it, and her husband went for it. And so sin came into the world. And it's clear, isn't it, that pride is more serious than often we give it credit for, or decredit, negative credit for. 1 John uh, 2, verse 16, the Apostle John, and uh, he writes this. And I'm reading it from the Amplified Translation, which uh, kind of opens up some of the, the Greek ideas behind the words. It says, the pride of life. It refers to the pride of life. And in brackets, it says, assurance in one's own resources or in the stability of earthly things. So the pride of life is assurance of our own resources or in the stability of earthly things. These do not come from the Father, but are from the world itself. So pride is this independence from God, that uh, assurance in our own resources, the stability of of the world around us, that we can just let God go, put God in a box, because the world's going to be okay, and we're in charge of everything. But we know that's not true, if we only think about it for a moment. So pride is something to be very wary of, and God abhors this pride. Not because, in a sense, God makes up an arbitrary rule, you shall not be proud, although that would be legitimate, but ultimately because of what pride was doing to them, what pride was doing to people's hearts, what pride was doing in how it corrupted the nation, in how the poor and the vulnerable were being trampled on, how pride was taking people away from, from God who loved them. You know, you love someone so much, and you care for them, and you open up your heart to them, and then, and then they turn away from you, they turn their back on you and insult you. How, how much that hurts. And the Lord loved these people. And pride was actually damaging their relationship. It was damaging their society. It was damaging their community. And ultimately their relationship with him. So the next section, and shorter section, is about justice poisoned. Justice poisoned. And we're now looking at verses 12 to 13. Now some things just don't go together, do they? Some things just don't go together. So for example, if you were to say a horse... And a fridge doesn't go together, does it? But if you were to say horse and cart, well, we know those two go together. Horse and fridge, it's incongruous. It doesn't seem to to fit, does it? It doesn't go together. And uh, the next uh, button to press reveals incongruous combinations. We see in verse 12, incongruous combinations. Do horses run on rocky crags? Do you see horses like mountain goats running up uh, cliffs? No. Does one plow the sea with oxen? You know, have you ever seen a farmer taking a plow into the sea to, uh, to kind of plow over the, the water? Doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't go together, incongruous combinations. But the second half of verse 12 says, "God speaking to the Israelites, but you have done it. This is what you're doing. This is actually what you're doing. You've taken something good and twisted it to fit how you want it, And something good has become poison and bitterness, you've brought together incongruous combinations. You've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. Now, justice is healthy, isn't it, to a society? It is nourishing. Justice is nourishing to society. It's not poisonous. Righteousness is sweet. It's admirable. It's ennobling a community. It's not bitter. When justice and unrighteousness, uh, sorry, injustice and unrighteousness rule in any society, it is an ugly society, it is, it is an unhealthy society, it is a society where the poor get trodden on, it is a society where corruption can, can fester and grow. And human pride amongst Israelites has done the incongruous, it has turned health and sweetness into poison and to bitterness. Pride, self-interest has twisted good things and made them bad. And this, of course, went along with the the boastful arrogance, verse 13. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? You can see how pride goes together with all this. And the poisonous and the bitter thing that happened in Israel was that the evil oppression of the poor, neglect of the needy, idol worship, corruption, all these things, all this was done whilst keeping a facade of being the people of the Lord. So at this time, if you were to go to the Israelites and say, who's your God? They would have said, the Lord. We're the people, the ancient people of Israel. We've got the law. We've got the Lord. They would have said that. If the leaders had said, we'll we'll ditch everything to do with Yahweh, we'll be honest pagans, we're going to throw off the laws, we're going to ignore the Old Testament, the law, we're going to uh, kind of let go all the restraints on evil and we'll just do as we please, at least people would know where they stood and they'd be honest pagans at least, wouldn't they? We don't do justice here in this nation. If you come to this nation, we don't do justice. We don't do righteousness. Make your choice. That's what we do. But they didn't do that. They weren't honest about it. They still put the title over their nation, the Lord's. And of course, this attitude, this development uh this throwing off of the restraints would have been terrible it would be horrific for any community it becomes a survivor of the fittest it becomes the survivor of the strongest it becomes a wild west we can see what's happened in some states in america can't we where the police have kind of been pushed back and uh, anarchy has reigned in those situations and looting and violence has just uh ex- exploded in its in its, uh, in its volume and, and uh and the amount of it. And, but at least, at least, if we're honest about what we want, then there's an honest sinfulness there in a sense, isn't there? And those who don't like it, well, they can get out of the nation. They can get out of Dodge City because that's how we do things here. But it wasn't like that. They still kept the facade. The people of Israel, and particularly the leaders, tried to keep this facade. The pretense that they were the Lord's as if they were trying to keep an insurance policy going just in case, but that's not how it works with God, and we can't live our Christian lives that way, we can't profess to be a Christian, but then just do what we please, because it doesn't work, it doesn't go, becoming a Christian is by definition repenting of all that we know is wrong in our lives, and coming to God for forgiveness for it, believing in Jesus for forgiveness, and letting him guide and rule in our lives, letting him show us the way to go, a better way to go, a way that is righteous, a way that is just, a way that does show his love. And so we we can't keep that facade and pretend we need to be truthful. We need to be honest with God, with ourselves. So on the outside, they use the name of the Lord, Yahweh. They're judges. They had the Old Testament law books there. They had the outward appearance of being a people that stood for righteousness, for justice and for righteousness. And of course, they're the things that ennoble, ennoble any community. But if you went to their law courts you could not expect justice to be done if you appealed to the rule of law in Israel you had no hope that people would seek to do the right thing so if you were poor had no influence no power you were toast there's no hope that's what it was like that's what God is concerned about that's why God challenges this nation now if we're a Christian And I hope and pray that we all are or will become Christians. If we're a Christian, we have the greatest honor of having the name Jesus linked to us. We are Jenny, Fred, Bill, Belinda, Carl, but ultimately Christian. That's the best part about our name. I am Carl, a Christian. What an honor to have Christ Jesus linked with who I am, with who you are. We stand for the Lord's righteousness and justice, don't we? It's tied up with our name, Christian. It's tied up with who we are. Now, are there any ways in which our real attitudes and behavior do not demonstrate justice and righteousness, do not live up to the name Christian? If we have management responsibility in our workplace, or if we have employees, If we have a position of authority in society, local politics, the police, a magistrate, are we a healthy injection into our society? Do we make justice feel great or like poison? Do we demonstrate righteousness as a sweet thing or as something bitter? We're at school, still at school, still studying maybe. University, college, do we turn a blind eye to the way that, the unfair way that some people are treated with prejudice or bullying? Do we stand by them? that awkward person, that person who is on the outside of things? Do we try to befriend them and support that lonely person? Or do we even go along with a big laugh at someone else's expense? Do we demonstrate righteousness and justice at school, college, university? Do our children or grandchildren see us sincerely trying to honour and obey the Lord? We'll never demonstrate perfection, will we? I will never, you'll never demonstrate perfection. But can we demonstrate a genuine desire to obey God and demonstrate change where we go wrong? If we're demonstrating those things, that will be a blessing to our children, our grandchildren, our Nephews and nieces. Do we bring a a health and a sweetness to the lives that we touch? Or do we give justice and righteousness a bad name? Do we lead people to think ill of the name of the Lord? God forbid that we do. And then the next button to press will bring up what about health and sweetness in our church fellowship? What about health and sweetness? in our fellowship. The New Testament warns us about divisive people, people who like a good argument, who kind of like throw in a hand grenade just to create a fuss and see what happens, Throw in a verbal hand grenade and see what happens. The New Testament warns us about people who want their own way and want their own way pushed onto others. It warns about people like diatrophies who wanted the preeminence, who wanted to come out on top and push his weight around. The New Testament warns us about people who are boastful, legalistic people, people prone to judging others. In some cases, the richer Christians are criticized for high and mighty attitudes. We see that in Corinth, don't we? The more influential people not caring for the others. These things going on in a fellowship don't demonstrate the the beauty and the sweetness of justice and righteousness, do they? In some cases, some of these people who the New Testament warns about may not be the genuine articles, may not be genuine Christians. But the point is, the main point is this, that we all need the humility to recognize the danger of having wrong attitudes or drifting towards wrong attitudes and behavior that bring a little bit of poison, maybe a little bit of bitterness. We need to be aware, uh, and instead of adding to an atmosphere which is negative that instead we add to a healthy atmosphere that instead we actively and the bible tells us that we need to pursue peace and pursue unity and to actively work to bless one and another we need to to recognize that we we need to positively add in elements of the sweetness of righteousness and the beauty of justice the Lord's justice and righteousness, we don't want them to be tarnished. We don't want to add in elements of poison or bitterness, do we? And we want the health of meeting together, we want the health of meeting together to be clear, to be a blessing that we it's a joy to be with one another. It's a joy to share the gospel, whether it's online or in person. It's a joy to teach and to seek to be a blessing to one another. The Apostle James addresses these issues in his letter and he reminds the Christians to keep a healthy sense of humility and a healthy dependence upon God. And James 4, verse 6, he writes, Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 13, now, sorry, verse 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will not go to this or that city, spend a year there. Sorry, it was verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone there knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So there's this need to, of humility, this need to avoid pride, this need to recognize that it is if the Lord's will. And there's this humility and this dependence upon God that not only will obviously be a personal blessing to our relationship with God because we're leading upon him, but will also continue to spread that, that beauty of righteousness and justice amongst God's people, amongst each other. So then we sum up, and there should be the, the last slide and a few, few headings here as we sum up. We've seen that we need to beware of pride. Pride is an insidious sin, and it can creep in. And the antidote to that is to recognize that this is God's world, that we're saved by grace, that we're kept by grace, and that we, in a, we need to have a prayerful, dependent life upon God, trusting in the name of of Jesus. Beware of pride. We need, secondly, to, to live up to, to Christian values of righteousness and justice. We need to have a one of the drives of our lives is not to give a bad name to the Lord, not to give justice and righteousness a twist to be poison and, and bitterness, but we give God his honour that is that he deserves. Don't give. Righteousness or justice or the Lord, a bad name. And then we also need to remember that that God's greatest demonstration of righteousness and justice was actually at the cross. And this brings in the, the kind of an amazing element, dimension to the thought of righteousness and justice. You see, any arrogance, any boasting or superiority in us is surely cut down in view of God's love. It's surely cut down when we see what God did for us at the cross. Because what happened at the cross was this, that God made a way for justice to be done and righteousness to be upheld, so that sinners like you and I can be forgiven. And his answer was this, for the Lord Jesus to come in our place, and he did that willingly in our place, and for him to take upon himself our sins, if you like, the the verdict, the guilty verdict, he took that upon himself. And so what happened was that when Jesus died on the cross, when he, was, when he suffered on that cross, when he was punished, God's righteousness was done. God's justice was done in a way that means that you and I can ask for forgiveness and be forgiven, not on the basis that he was kind of swept under the carpet, but that the punishment has been paid clearly, finally, forever. So God doesn't forgive by ignoring or sweeping things under the carpet. God forgives on a righteous and a just basis. And so now righteousness and justice have met at the cross. God's love and his righteousness and peace have, have come together there at the cross. And so our stand for justice and righteousness is about, of course, good works and influence in our community. It should be, but it's ultimately about sharing the Christian gospel because that is the way that righteousness and justice can ultimately and eternally influence and affect and bless people that saves men and women for eternity. And then, of course, let's remember, lastly, the honour of having the name Jesus associated with us, that we are called Christians, that Jesus, Saviour, is our, the name that we love. Yahweh, Saviour, is the name that we love, Jesus. And so, therefore, let's demonstrate to the world, let's demonstrate to each other the sweetness and health that name let's pray Father we bring before you any pride that we're battling with at the moment self-reliance Lord we bring before you the sin of putting you in a box and living the rest of our lives how we want Lord we are sorry for how we have not always honoured your name Lord, we're sorry, Father, for how that people around us might give uh, have got an impression of righteousness and justice as something not as sweet or beautiful as it is because of the way that we've behaved, the way that we've let you down. Lord, forgive us for how we've not represented you well, even though we've claimed to be yours. But Lord, we also come to you thanking you. That our sins are forgiven. That however we have failed you, that we can come right now, confess our sins, and you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we come asking for that cleansing, believing it, Lord, because you promised it. And Father, help us now to be people who seek to honor your name, Lord, to demonstrate the sweetness and the beauty of righteousness and justice in our community through the way that we behave through the way that we treat our colleagues our employees the people that we have authority over the way that we live and behave at school college university the way that we behave in our neighborhood and the way that we behave amongst each other lord we pray that we might demonstrate the sweetness and the beauty of righteousness and justice So please help us to put these things into action. In Jesus' name, amen.